Amen. You may have a seat. Senator, come up here. He's going to help us read the word this morning. You're getting a lot of, a lot of uh, stage time today, Ash. Man. All right, you can use it. Oh, you got it? All right. Our text this morning is found in Matthew 5. We've been reading through the Beatitudes for the last couple of months. And we're going to start out reviewing the Beatitudes. And then I will read our text for this morning. I'll hold this. Go ahead, Ash. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be all children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because... Great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Ash. You can sit down. Two Bibles. I'm sick. Have you ever walked past something so many times you forgot it's there? Psychologists call this habituation, the diminishing of a psychological or emotional response to a frequently repeated stimulus. It happens all the time. Ask my wife how many house projects I've walked past (laughs) and forgot they were there. I remember vividly coming home after seven months in Australia with YWAM 20 years ago. Australia is a beautiful place. I I was amazingly privileged to have that opportunity, but it is also mostly desert. When I stepped back off the plane coming into Michigan, it was like I was seeing the beauty of Michigan for the first time. I was blown away in early June, the shades of green and the lushness that we get to enjoy here. It was like I saw Michigan for the first time. Today's text is pretty familiar to most of us. Um, You wouldn't need the lyrics on the screen to sing this little light of mine. Uh, We sang about light in all of the songs, I think, almost all of the songs we sang this morning. Um, These these are common themes that we hear a lot as Christians in our culture. But for most of us, these metaphors have have become so familiar, they've lost their potency. Being salt and light in the world has sometimes been reduced to childish or even gimmicky moralisms. Like we just need to be really nice people, sin as little as possible, And if the opportunity presents itself, maybe share the gospel. Well, as it turns out, this is not what Jesus is doing in this passage. I want to invite us to look at this passage with fresh eyes. And to do that, we're going to look at the context, specifically who Jesus is talking to, 
and what his intended purpose was. We'll see how this plays out in our life and in our world today, and then give some room for the Holy Spirit to do his work, to challenge and encourage us this morning. Ready? So God's word for us today is an invitation to be wholeheartedly devoted disciples who disrupt the ways of the world by being a blessing in the world. So we've been preaching through the Beatitudes, uh, which is the short list of blessings that Jesus gives at the beginning of a longer speech, which has come to be known as the Sermon on the Mount. This comes chapters 5 through 7 of the Gospel of Matthew, which we've been studying as a church for the last couple months. In order to get what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount, we need to understand two things. Who is he talking to and what's his purpose for saying what he says? So let's start with the purpose. Matthew's purpose for writing this book about Jesus is clear. In chapters 4, verse 17, he says, Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is telling the world that he is the king of a kingdom, and it's the kingdom of God. Matthew uses the word kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God is the same thing. So on the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus is describing what his kingdom is like, what the people of his kingdom are like, and is inviting us to follow him into this new way to be human. It's a call to repent, a call to turn away from sin and worldly ways to follow him into this new way, the way of the kingdom. Now let's look at who Jesus is talking to. This is pretty cool. We read in the chapter preceding the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew describes the people following Jesus as great crowds and as disciples. So right before Jesus sat down on the mountainside, he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom in Galilee, and people from all over Syria bring to him, quote, all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. Just before this, Jesus called his first disciples, four young fishermen, Peter and Andrew, James and John. This is Matthew 4.18. Um, some, this was uh, actually a shocker to me. When, when you read the word disciples, Jesus' disciples were there, I think we automatically think there's 12 young men. There's only four. There's only four of them here. That's not the 12. Um, just four fishermen that probably had no idea what they were getting into at this point. So here we have Jesus speaking to a crowd of his followers. They're poor, sick, hurting, marginalized, lowly, common folk. And Matthew doesn't say anything here about the wealthy, the educated, the healthy, the strong, the culturally affluent. At this point, eventually we do hear about these people as well. But all we know at this point is we have a raggedy bunch of Jesus followers. And this is important to understand what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He's not giving us a short summary on ethics. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. He's embodying and he's proclaiming what his kingdom is like. And in doing this, he's disrupting the cultural assumptions of the day. From here, Matthew makes it clear that the invitation is to follow him. Matthew 4.19, Jesus calls four fishermen and says, follow me. Matthew 4.25 Great crowds followed him from Decapolis, Galilee, Jerusalem, Judea, beyond the Jordan, all over the place, following, following, following. Matthew 5, great crowds and disciples followed him. And as soon as Jesus wraps up the Sermon on the Mount in chapter uh, 8, 
The first thing Matthew writes is when Jesus came down from the mountain, quote, great crowds followed him. Matthew wants us to know this is an invitation to follow Jesus into a new way of being, a new way of living, and it's the kingdom. All right, let's take one last look at the Beatitudes as a whole because they set up the passage for today. Um, We've been in this section for a couple of months now, and it's been rich. As we've been studying, I've been really curious to know how would these blessings have landed on the original hearers. And we've talked about that a little bit. Um, I was able to do a little bit of research, um, but this isn't the first time a rabbi proclaimed a list of blessings. Uh, Psalm 1 says, blessed are those who... One verse one says, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the company of mockers. By the way, did you notice how Asher said blessed? And I always say blessed. It's so funny. Isn't it just the familiarity, right? Like when else do you use the word blessed? Never, never use blessed. So good job, Asher. You're doing great. The book of Proverbs, also full of blessings. And um, there's this man who lived, a rabbi who lived 150 years before Jesus, and his name was Jesus too. This is, this is fascinating. Uh, Jesus ben Sirah, who also had a famous list of blessings. And I looked it up, and I'm going to read some of these. Listen to them. It says, Blessed is the man who can rejoice in his children. Blessed is the man who lives to see the downfall of his enemies. Okay. Blessed is the man who lives with a sensible wife. Blessed is the one who does not plow with an ox and donkey together. Talking about being unequally yoked. Blessed is the one who does not sin with the tongue. Blessed is the one who has not served an inferior. Blessed is the one who finds a friend. Blessed is the one who speaks to attentive listeners. And blessed, and how great is the one who finds wisdom. It sounds kind of like the Bible, doesn't it? But knowing here in 2023, knowing Jesus' list of blessings, they hit a little different, don't they? This list includes things like, blessed are you if you see the downfall of your enemies. Jesus said, love your enemies. This list includes things like, blessed blessed are you if you are privileged enough to not have to serve someone who is in a lower social class than you. Jesus flipped that completely upside down. Look at who he's talking to. Blessed are you if people listen to you, if you have an audience, if you have influence. Look at who Jesus called to be his disciples. Or a bunch of fishermen, a tax collector, a bunch of rejects and nobodies in the culture of the day. So we start to get a little more of an idea, I think, and a glimpse of what Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount. Everyone would have expected Jesus to say, blessed are the healthy, the wealthy, and the wise. But he doesn't. He sits before a crowd of poor, sick, diseased, beat down, neglected, and marginalized people and says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are you who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. As Pastor Jalisa said last week, Jesus is starting a fire on this mountainside. The air must have been electric with these words. It is not what people would have expected him to say. And he's flipping down, flipping upside down, exposing broken systems, ideologies of the day, and is provocatively inviting people to follow him 
to a new way to be human. So after this fiery introduction, Jesus lays out his thesis for the rest of the sermon in this text that we have this morning about salt and light. And he immediately gets personal. I love this. He's got everyone's attention. Every eye. You probably could have heard a pin drop. And Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Every human heart longs to know the answer to the question, who am I? Does my life have meaning? There's not a single human being on earth who has not wrestled with this question. And Jesus cuts right to the heart and declares, I know who you are. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. I want to unpack these metaphors um, of salt and light so we can continue to feel the weight of what Jesus is saying here. So, uh, salt. i got a couple slides. You can go ahead and throw one of those up. Uh, There should be one that says salt. So when Jesus calls his followers salt, what is he saying? This is a metaphor, so there's some room for interpretation. Um, And I'm going to get a little bit nerdy here and share some kind of trivia, but it's context, and it's it's pretty interesting. I think it gives us a little insight into what Jesus is saying when he says, you are salt. So, at the center of the development of human civilization, there's one mineral that stands above the rest as having the greatest impact. Salt. Humans and animals can't survive without salt, right? So, in fact, the Harvard School of Health says the average human needs about 500 milligrams of salt a day. We consume about seven times that here in America. But that wasn't always the case. If we go back in time as far as we can, it's believed that human civilization was built around salt licks. A salt lick is a dried-up salt that's bubbled up to the surface of the earth from the sea and deposits underground. Animals created paths. Animals created paths with salt licks. Humans followed those animals. And those paths made trails and eventually roads and eventually civilizations were built around these paths and roads and salt licks. So salt's played a really pivotal role in the development of humanity as a whole. In the Old Testament, roughly 7th century B.C., the Levitical law demanded that all sacrifices be salted. I just learned this. That's interesting. Leviticus uh, 2.13, look it up. Salt your sacrifices. So salt, it was believed among ancient Hebrews, would purify the sacrifice. The use of salt as a meat purifier in Hebrew sacrifices made it a symbol of God's eternal covenant with Israel. In the Jewish mind, salt physically and metaphorically was a preservative and a purifier to anything deemed unholy. Let's zoom ahead to the first century AD. So this is the context of Jesus, ancient Rome. Salt was invaluable and used as currency, a flavor enhancer, a preservative, and a health and beauty product and an antiseptic. Okay, a little more trivia. The name of the goddess of health in Roman society, Salus, was derived from the word sal, which is the Roman word for salt. So salt and health are are paired together. One of the busiest roads in Rome was the Via Salaria, which is the salt route where where salt was traded. Salt was so valuable that Roman soldiers were actually paid in salt. Yeah, um... And if a soldier didn't um, measure up to par, it would be said, they are not worth salt. Have you ever heard that phrase? You're not worth salt, not worth your weight in salt. That's where that comes from. 
So today, um, I spent some time in Israel, which is amazing. You can drive. It takes about two hours to drive from this, where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount to the Dead Sea, which then was called the Salt Sea. This is where health and beauty products have, in all kinds of uses, have been extracted from the Dead Sea that were used, are still used today and were also used 2,000 years ago. So, in the mind of an ancient Easterner, whether you're Jew, Gentile, rich, or poor, salt was viewed as one of the world's most precious commodities, a potent source of nourishment and flavor, a preserving, purifying, healing substance that every human wants and needs. And this is precisely what Jesus means when he says, you are the salt of the earth. Embrace it. Imagine yourself sitting on the hillside hearing these words for the first time. You blessed ones, you poor in spirit, you pure in heart, you who hunger and thirst for righteousness in our world, you who seek and work to make peace, you who mourn, you meek, nobodies. You are the salt of the earth. You are the single most valuable and potent source of blessing in the world. Let's look at light. So when Jesus says, you are the light of the world, he's saying, you were created to be a kingdom witness. You can throw that slide up. You are are created to be a kingdom witness in the darkest places on earth. While salt describes who we are, light describes how we live and what we do. You can throw that final slide up. Salt identifies us as the most important blessing to the world, the source of the blessing, and light describes us as the actual impact of blessing that we have on the world. The metaphor is pretty simple. Light does its best work when it's surrounded by darkness, when it can be seen. Jesus says in verse 16 that if our light shines, that our light shines when we do good deeds, and the result is God is glorified. God gets the glory. So Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world, you are the most valuable and potent source of blessing in the world, in a world of compromise, and you are created to be kingdom witnesses in the darkest places on earth. Sweet. End of sermon? I wish we could end there, because Jesus has some really challenging words for us next. This is inspiring, what we've read, and Jesus, um, he doesn't mince words in this section. He says, Um, right after he says, you're the salt of the earth, he says, but if salt has lost its taste, I think the NIV says, if salt, what does it say, is no longer salt? Lost its saltiness. The actual word there is taste. If it lost its taste, how how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled into street dust. Um, Apparently, first century Jewish rabbis had a running joke uh, when their disciples would ask, how do you make salt salty again? They would reply, uh, with the afterbirth of a mule. It's pretty pretty uh, brash. Mules are sterile, so it's kind of like, you ask a dumb question, I'm going to give you a dumb answer. But... It's kind of the point Jesus is making here. If your life and your allegiance is compromised, you don't have a place in his kingdom. If you're going to follow Jesus, it means you have to turn away from sin, 
You'll have to give up worldly ways of thinking and living and go all in on the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is essentially giving us two options here. One, be the greatest source of blessing that the world could ever ask for or be destroyed. He doesn't mince words, and I don't want to mince words either. Jesus here is calling for wholehearted devotion to him as the king of an upside-down kingdom, a kingdom that stands in stark contrast to the world, like light to darkness. He doesn't leave room here for lukewarm cultural Christianity. He's calling for all-in, potent, culturally disruptive disciples, uncompromised by sin and worldly ideologies who will stand out as light in the darkness. The problem in our world today is we have churches full of Christians who look no different than the world. An increasing number of Americans view the church as irrelevant at best and hypocritical bigots at worst. The problem is not those people out there, but I want to talk to us. The problem is us, church. I'm referring to us, Big C Church, as the church in America, and the little part that Gold Avenue has to play in that. We have failed to be salt and light. We identify as Christians, but are compromised because we haven't left our worldly thinking, our worldly actions, and worldly allegiances. We'll start looking internally at personal sin, at our own hearts. Note that Jesus calls his followers salt and light, not salt or light. We have Christians who are trying to be salt and not light. These we could call the frozen chosen. They're nice people with strong morals and convictions, but their faith is relegated to a private, self-focused form of Christianity. They work hard to live comfortable lives, insulated from the poor, sick, hurting, and marginalized. They pray that God will heal their land, hoping he will just magically do it without them having to get their hands dirty. The ultimate goal of their faith is their own personal salvation, spiritual growth, and well-being. They may consume books, attend church conferences, worship nights, and prayer gatherings to fill the void in their hearts until it eventually wears them out. They grow cold and bitter. The purpose of their life is reduced to protecting themselves and preserving their values in a dark and evil world. They hold up, do their personal devotions, pray anxious prayers, and hope the evil of the world around them will just go away. Their life resembles a lamp that never lit a room, a city that never lit a sky. They were created to have a tremendous impact in the world, and it was wasted. Then there are those who want to be light, but not salt. These people do great things for the kingdom. They prioritize the needs of others. They make sacrifices to help those in need, maybe even build ministries, nonprofits, and churches. They're working hard, blessing the poor, but they're compromised. Because their identity is built on what they have done and not who God says they are, they work hard to keep their hid, sin hidden from view. Eventually, that sin rears its ugly head. They are found out, and everything they worked for crumbles. Rather than getting the glory for their, rather than God getting glory for their work, His name is dragged to the mud. And sadly, we've seen this happen. We've seen it happen on the platform of big churches and high-profile leaders. 
but I'm sure that it happens more often than we know outside the platform. The problem in the world is not only a personal issue, but also a societal one. Sin manifests itself in cultural ideologies that oppose the kingdom of God. When we fail to break allegiance with these worldly ideologies, our witness in the world is compromised. Now, an ideology is defined as a system of ideas and ideals, especially one which forms the basis of economic or political theory and practice. When Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, he was preaching to a world that had some issues. <laughs> to say it, to say it, yeah. It was a tinderbox. Um, it, uh, ancient Rome has sometimes been referred to as a tinderbox by historians, um, politically and culturally, of competing ideologies, and everyone had their own solution. Zealots believed the answer was violent resistance. Sadducees believed the answer was quiet compromise. Pharisees believed the answer was personal piety. The Essenes believed the answer was to retreat from the world altogether. Roman elites believed the answer was allegiance to the empire to achieve Pax Romana, to achieve world peace. And things aren't so different today. Much like the fragile and contentious first century world in which Jesus lived, we live in a world with a myriad of clashing ideologies. I couldn't possibly cover them all, but around the globe, groups of people are violently, violently promoting their ideas and ideals by force believing it's justified for making the world, as they see it, a better place. We see this unfolding real-time in Israel and Gaza, don't we? We see this happening in Ukraine and Russia, but we also see it happening right here in the U.S. A 2022 poll showed that among Americans who identify as Democrat or Republican, one in three now believe that violence could be justified to advance their party's goals. One in three... We saw race riots in 2020. We saw the storming of the Capitol in 2021. We hear the political rhetoric in the news all the time. Across party lines, Americans are increasingly violent in their attempts to defend their political ideologies. Even if it doesn't manifest in physical violence, there's violence brewing under the surface of our minds as Americans. 60% of voters think members of the opposite political party pose a threat to America. 40% would call them evil, and more than 20% would call them animals. Our political allegiances are tearing us apart as a nation and as a church. How many friends, family members, coworkers have you lost in the last three years due to politics? How many have we lost as Gold Avenue, church? due to differing political ideologies. This is literally tearing us apart. And this is precisely what Jesus is speaking to when he calls us to be salt and light in the world. He's saying, you are different. Doesn't mean we can't vote Democrat or Republican, Jesus doesn't ch- uh, but Jesus does challenge our allegiances here. Both parties have values that align with the kingdom of heaven and areas where they stand opposed. And the question Jesus is laying out for us is when your political affiliation causes a compromise, are you willing to lean away from that allegiance and into allegiance with the kingdom of heaven? That, I feel like, is the challenge that he is laying out before us right now. Okay, we just talked about politics. Take a, everyone take a deep breath. Deep cleansing breath. 
So God's been talking, calling his people to leave their sin and worldly ways and follow him from the very beginning. This passage in in Matthew isn't the first time we see God doing this. Think back to Abraham. Way back in Genesis 12, God called this guy to leave his nation, to leave his heritage with its own ideologies and go to a new land that he would show him. And Abram went. And look what God did with his obedience. He made a promise to Abram. I will make you, this is a quote, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Does this sound familiar to Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount? It certainly does. Just as God blessed Abraham to be a blessing to the whole world, so Jesus, thousands of years later, is proclaiming the same blessing, standing on a mountainside in front of a crowd of nobody, saying, you are blessed to be a blessing in the dark world. Jesus' disciples were full of sin, sickness, and disease with fiercely clashing ideologies. Matthew, one of his disciples, uh, a tax collector, And Simon, who was a zealot, would not have been caught dead at a table together. Zealots literally killed tax collectors for a living. But yet these two men said yes to Jesus, and he taught them a new way forward. Anyone feel slightly overwhelmed? Jesus is calling us to an impossible task here. And if you're sitting here today hearing these words and you feel underqualified or even disqualified from being a blessing to the world and a potent, culturally disruptive witness for the kingdom of God, I have good news. God knows who you are. You're the salt of the earth. He knows you can't do it on your own. That's why he came. On a mountainside 2,000 years ago, he called a crowd of poor, sinful, demon-possessed, sick people blessed because he knew his blood would cover them. The late Tim Keller summarized the gospel as this, We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. The determining factor on whether or not your identity is tasty salt or worthless salt does not hinge on your performance, but on the grace of God in Christ extended to those who will seek him. Just a little later in this same sermon is where Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For anyone who asks receives. To the one who seeks finds. To the one who knocks it will be opened. Ask, seek, knock. Jesus is calling us to wholehearted devotion to him and his kingdom. But hear this, wholeheartedness is not a measure of your progress over sin. It's the measure of your willingness to seek Jesus at any cost. Whatever it takes, Jesus, even though I'm going to screw it up, I'm in. I'm in, and it doesn't matter what it costs me. The invitation here is to trust him, to follow him as the king of a kingdom that's worth giving up everything for.
So I invite us now to wonder, what is Jesus' vision for us, for our families, for our communities, and for Gold Avenue Church? How might he use us as salt and light in the world today? How might he be calling us to be wholeheartedly devoted in an uncompromised source of blessing that shines brightly in the darkest places on earth? I recently had the opportunity uh, just on Thursday to travel to Chicago, Chi-town, um, and I went to a place called Lawndale. Anybody ever been to Lawndale? Lawndale is on the, the northwest side of, of Chicago. It is known as the most impoverished and violent part of Chicago. And we've all probably heard Chicago is one of the most violent cities in America um, due to especially gun violence. So um, there's this church there called Lawndale Community Church that started in the 80s by a guy named Wayne Gordon. And I got to sit down with Wayne Gordon. He just graduated, or sorry, not graduated, retired in September from the pastor as the pastor of Lawndale Community Church. I got to sit down with this guy and hear him retell the story of how this church was planted. I'm going to give you a very brief synopsis because I was so inspired walking through uh, this area of town with a, from a small church that was committed from the very beginning to being salt and light in this neighborhood. So Wayne Gordon moved into the neighborhood, and he moved onto his street, and he was teaching high schoolers. He, start, he wanted to start a fellowship of Christian athletes group with some of his young boys, uh, and they wouldn't even go to his house because it was such a violent... They were like, well, no, we don't go on that street. Uh, so he moved into literally one of the roughest streets and the roughest neighborhood of Chicago in the 80s. Um, he started meeting with this group of young boys, and they started to get a vision for the kingdom. And they wrote on a whiteboard, what, what do you think this neighborhood needs, he asked these boys, to show that this is like... Uh, that, that, this, that would make this a better place. And the boys came up with things like, we need a gym, we need a health clinic, uh, we have people that don't have good representation in court, and they're just going to jail, cause, not because they're guilty, but because they're poor. We have um, people struggling with, with food insecurity. And they just started to list all of these things that they were struggling with. So he listened to them. And one of those things was a gym. And they had this little building with 10-foot ceilings, and they, you know, you can't shoot a basketball in a room with 10-foot ceilings. You hit the ceiling every time. Um, and they're like, well, we can't really build up, so let's just start digging. So these boys, just they started breaking through the concrete with shovels and digging out the floor of this building so that, that they could have a gym in their community. Well, the, this is in 1984. The, uh, the city caught wind of this. It got some publicity. The Chicago Bears ended up catching wind, and they actually came in and built a gym. They helped them finish the job. Um, so they came in with equipment, and, and they built this gym. It was pretty amazing. Since then, they have built a health, a health center that serves hundreds of thousands of patients a year uh, with a budget of uh, like uh, $60 million a year or something. Um, they have um, a... Uh, a, a thousand person a day fitness center. They have um, they have lawyers that are working with people before they get to the criminal justice system, doing restoration circles and and helping reconcile relationships on the streets. They have um, just literally an, an, like two blocks of 
resources for the community. And uh, Wayne Gordon said, when I walk around here, it feels like I'm walking on sacred ground. And I could feel that. And if you ever get a chance to visit uh, the Lawndale community, it feels like sacred ground. It's in the middle of the hood, and all of a sudden you've got this beautiful, these restaurants. Luminaldi's Pizza. Anybody like Luminaldi's Pizza? They actually got Luminaldi to, to plant, to donate their 10th restaurant to the Lawndale community. So there's one of the most popular pizza joints. In, and just think of the economic growth that brings to the community, right? So um, I was so inspired by this church and, and thought, man, and challenged and just thought, man, I would love to dream, like in our context, we're not North Lawndale, but we're the west side of Grand Rapids. What, what are the needs here in our community? How can we listen to our neighbors and hear, like, what would make this a better place? And then how can we commit to being salt and light in the west side? And I hope that it can put tingles down your spine like it did for me as you just begin to dream with God and think about what he could do with little old poor, marginalized, go Avenue church. And like, you know, we, we don't have all the resources. We're not a mega church, but I believe God can do something profound that we could have such an impact on the West side. Yeah. If we'll just say yes, just say yes to Jesus. So that's all I have. I know we're moving into communion. I think the worship team can, can come on up. And as they do, I want to just invite us to reflect on, on what I was sharing this morning. So maybe, maybe, maybe close your eyes um, if you want and, and just reflect. God, what are you doing here? I believe that Jesus is calling us to be all in. Am I all in? He's given us a vision for life in the kingdom. He's inviting us to join him. He's saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right here. The veil is thin. The opportunity is right in front of us. So maybe you've never said yes to Jesus. This is an invitation to follow him. There's a place for you in the kingdom. Turn from your old ways. Confess them to God. Run to his open arms. After the service, we'll have people up here to pray with you. Maybe you're on the fence. You believe in God, but you're having a hard time You're having a hard time being associated with evangelical Christians, maybe. Maybe you've been hurt by someone in the church. Maybe you're in a process of deconstructing what you believe, what parts of your faith are solid and which ones are maybe corrupted or compromised in some way. If that's you, hear Jesus' invitation this morning to repent. Repent simply means turn away from sin, turn away from compromise and turn to God. And don't stop halfway. He's inviting you to trust him with your whole self, even your doubts. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And maybe you've been faithfully following Jesus for a long time, but something you heard today revealed an area in your own heart or life still plagued by sin or another allegiance that may be compromising your witness. Thank God, thank you God for your grace. And he's inviting us to to confess and repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. We're going to share communion in just communion in a few moments. I didn't realize we were going to do that until about an hour before the service. 
But I thought, what could be a better response than to come to the table where Jesus is saying, come follow me, and to, to practice something that is distinct to the kingdom of heaven as a statement to say, Jesus, I'm all in. Thank you.